Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. Well, we um, are starting a new sermon series this morning. Um, oh, man. Okay. It's very hot today. So it's good. We're lively. No, it's all right. That's okay. Um, on the resurrection appearances of Jesus, as we walk through Jonah and we saw God's grace and mercy uh, poured out through someone who truly did not want to uh, take part in it. Here we see someone who fully embodies God's grace and mercy in the fullness of his person. And we thought, it, what, what better way should we do that than explore the resurrection appearances of Christ? So after his resurrection, this one being one of them, he appears to uh, many people. He's around for about 40 days. And so I thought it might be uh, wonderful to look at those and to see those because what the angel says here in this passage rings true, not just in that moment, but in our life as well. It's one of the most monumental statements about life, that he is risen Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Uh, the quote from N.T. Wright at the beginning uh, that Nick put at the very front of here is that to preach, uh, where are we? No, from C.S. Lewis, excuse me, to preach Christianity meant to the apostles, primarily to preach the resurrection. The resurrection and its consequences were the gospel, or the good news which Christians brought. This gospel, this good news, is one that does not settle for cliches. It does not just give pat answers for things in our life. It does not reduce us in who we are and in the image of God that we have been created. The rest of the world loves to run on this kind of reductionism. It loves to approach us as one-dimensional beings, but we are multi-dimensioned. We are four, eight, ten, twelve dimensions in our lives Advertising likes to just tell us, here's the solution that's going to solve the problems, that's going to get you out of your own personal hell. Here's the shirt that's just right off the shelf that's going to fit you. Even this doesn't fit me. This new suit doesn't fit me perfectly well. I could lose a few pounds or have some of it taken in or out a little bit, one or the other. But we live in this place, this beautiful neighborhood and area where the you look at the front of these houses, the, the front panel, the one dimension that we see, the facade, and we have no idea what's going on behind it. It's beautiful for sure. 
it's wonderful. But I love being able to walk around this neighborhood at night when the lights are on and you can see inside the house and maybe see a little bit more of what's going on into in the lives of those around us. What reductionism does when we just look at the facades of people is that it reduces not only who we are and how God has created us, but it also reduces our pain. It reduces the struggle. It reduces the suffering that we experience in our daily lives. The angel, when he arrives at the tomb, he doesn't give a title to Jesus. He calls him the crucified man. Looking at the resurrection does not negate his crucifixion. He couldn't have been resurrection, re- resurrected without g- dying. Quite, maybe that's obvious, but it does bear out. But rather, it gives it meaning and purpose. It allows us to know that God has redeemed his death, and God can redeem our pain and suffering around us as well. What weight are you carrying around today? Easter, we'd love to say, oh, we can celebrate, we can come, we can sing. And sometimes, you know, sometimes there's horns and big brass bands and everything and bell choirs, maybe depending on when you grew up in church or if you grew up in church. But here, even on Easter, we, there's pain and there's suffering happening in the world. We are still weighed down. We put extra expectations on our children to, to behave properly because it's a special day. We dress up even though maybe we still need to lose a couple pounds to fit into the new suit. We don't have to be happy-go-lucky all the time. We can be honest about the reality of the weight that we carry around with us, whether that's parenthood, jobs, relationships, childhood trauma, whatever it may be. You don't have to answer fine when you're asked, how are you in resurrection life? You don't have to be okay because it's resurrection life. It means that we do go through pain and suffering, but we also live life under the phrase, He is risen. He is risen indeed. One of the things that uh, teachers often do at the beginning of the school year is show and tell. It's one of those first exercises that someone can bring, the kiddos can bring a stuffy or a toy or a picture or something that they, one of their prized possessions to come in to be able to tell something about who they are and who their life is. We still do this on a regular basis. We do this with our house. We do this when, if we get a new car, we do it almost daily on Instagram as well. We curate and we cultivate these lives that have this beautiful image to them when there's so much more going on. The women, Mary Magdalene and the other women, or the other Mary, excuse me, she's named, go to the tomb to visit on the first day of the week. It's not holy time. It's not religious time. The Jews still kept their Sabbath this um, first Easter weekend, but it's secular time, and it's an event that transcends time. And they're expecting to see a gravesite, but instead they are told of the most profound event in human history. Throughout the passage, they are told, and Matthew tells us, to look, to see, to behold, and subsequently told to tell, to recount, to bear witness to what they have seen, to show and to tell. 
What is it that they have seen? What is it that they need to tell? Well, instead of expecting, instead of encountering a grave, they find a shining angel. They find an empty tomb, and they find a risen Jesus Christ. In each of these moments, they are shown the resurrection life reality before them, and they're told to go and tell others about it as well. The shining angel is the first thing that they see. When Mary and Mary went to the tomb, they were not prepared for what they were about to encounter. The earth quaked and an angel descended from heaven to roll back the stone and sat on it like a casual, just like hanging out, an angel there. And Matthew describes his appearance as lightning, as clothing as white as snow. In contrast, we have these guards who were sent to make sure that Jesus' disciples wouldn't steal the body. They were there to guard the tomb, to guard the place of death. But instead, when they see this, they are turned uh, to death. They are afraid for their lives. The irony here, Matthew is showing, is that their lives turn to death when they are protecting um, the, the, the place of death. And Jesus comes to life. The angel doesn't focus on the guards, though. He looks at the women and says, do not be afraid. You are seeking Jesus, the crucified man. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. The angel comes as a messenger to tell the women of Jesus' resurrection. The interesting thing here is that Jesus is not given any special titles. As I said, he's not called the Son of Man. He's not called the Son of God. He's not called the King of Glory. None of these titles in which he either takes on or is given himself uh, throughout the Gospels is given to him here. We would think that maybe it would be. Instead, he's called the Crucified Man. The angel does not gloss over his crucifixion. Instead, he announces three things about his resurrection. He says he is not here. This is a temporal statement. This is a physical statement. This is a physical resurrection that Jesus experiences. It's not a metaphor for something else. It's not a spiritual resurrection that he experienced. If it was spiritual, he would have said he's here. He's everywhere. It would have been this very flowing, kind of comforting uh, thing that, that, that kind of would, again, gloss over the pain of his resurrection. No, this is a bodily resurrection. He is not here. He is risen. This is one word in the Greek, er, uh, agerthe. He has been raised. Agerthe. This is passive. This is not something that Jesus did himself, but it's something that the Spirit and the Father together worked their power to raise him from the death. It's past. It's an event that has happened, and death has been overthrown, and it's completed. Death no longer has a last word on life. A friend of mine wrote uh, an essay um, about the pain that he has experienced um, at his wife's passing. He sent it to me this week. He said, yeah, death still has a sting, but it doesn't have the last word anymore. We still face it, but no longer is it the last thing that we face. And then the angel says, as he said, 
the angel is taking what Jesus has said throughout his life and his ministry, and he's demonstrating the embodied truth of his life in his teaching, in his way of being. Christ embodies this. This is almost more of a tell and show. Jesus told the disciples what was going to happen, and then he showed what was going to happen as well. He demonstrated it through his death and resurrection. John Calvin, the reformer, said, He came out of the tomb without witnesses, so that the empty place might be the first sign that he was alive. The effects of something are the witness. Effects are often passive or something that happens to us. We don't often see the wind, but we can see the trees move because of it. When the temperature drops, we don't see the temperature dropping, but we certainly feel it. We experience it. There's a change, a pressure of weather. Um, We can feel the pollen entering into um, our sinuses. Though I don't see it covering any cars yet, I can feel it. And as we were outside yesterday at, a, at an egg hunt, the, the, the amount of times I sneezed, you would have thought I, um, I was worried. I, you know, you can't sneeze anymore. Um, you can't cough anymore. But I, it was like over and over and over again. I couldn't do it. Well, I'm going to um, the south this week, and I fear for the pollen that I'm going to encounter. There it will be seen and palpable. But here it's the effects of it are the witness of it to us. The passive nature of the power of the resurrection that raised Jesus from the dead means that you, too, can be raised from the dead. The truth of Jesus' resurrection is not that you have to do something to have this new life. It is something that is done to you. It is not your responsibility. It is not bootstrapped. It's not a smile on your face. It's not a facade that you live behind, but it is coming fully into the life that he has for you, that he pours out upon you. It is a God-enlivening revivication of your life. It does not matter how dead you are. God can raise you from the dead and give you new life. And it's his deepest desire to do that for you. That same spirit, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, breathes new life into you to give you a new heart, to give you new eyes, to give you new ears. And only he has the power to raise the dead, to turn our everyday lives not just the sacred time, but all of time into resurrection. Sometimes it takes three days. Sometimes it takes three years. Sometimes it takes three decades. Sometimes it might even be entering into the tomb ourselves. But in Christ, we have resurrection life. But take heart. The tomb is empty the empty tomb. Unlike the guards, the angel isn't there to protect the tomb from being seen. He is there to show forth the emptiness of death. 
He doesn't say, hey, why don't you guys go, Mary and Mary, go tell the disciples, why don't you guys head away from the tomb, and then uh, I'll clean up some things here, and then uh, maybe later on in the day you can come back and look at it. He says, no, 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 come in. Come into the place of death, because it is not a place of death any longer. Come and look where Jesus had lain. And then he instructs them to go and tell the disciples to bear witnesses. He says, Jesus will meet you in Galilee. And I love how he ends this, this show and tell dynamic coming back and forth again. He says, see, I have told you. Again, look, see, listen, tell. The women go with great fear, with fear and great joy. And uh, one commentator said he, he asked this question, how can fear and joy take place at the same time. He was at this conference, and one uh, young pastor stood up and said, well, I just got married, so there's a lot of fear and joy happening at the same time. Seinfeld, when asked about what it's like to be parenting, he said it's like surfboarding on a rainbow. It's all of life that you can handle. It is all of life that we can have in this place. It can be with great fear and great joy that we look into the place of death and the face. What's yours? What's the tomb that you are facing? Could be childhood home. Could be the place that you grew up. Could be your family of origin. Could be your work or your job. You have to do it to survive, but you're not exactly living there. Could be your children. Could be as you look at them, you feel the guilt and shame that you have experienced in your own childhood and think, how can I be raising a kid? It could be the prospect of the next phase of your life as well. How is this going to happen? Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your lack of marriage. Maybe it's your desire for the place where life is supposed to be partnered and supported with what instead It's a tomb. Maybe these are the exact places where God wants to meet you. Uh, My friend in his essay said, um, God was silent as he grieved. But as he began to, it wasn't a silence of where he was absent. It was a silence of his presence, allowing him to be there with him as he grieved the loss of his wife. Stanley Hauerwas says, Resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, creates a life freed from the death that grips our everyday lives. St. Peter uh, Chrysologos, um, uh, he was like 1100s, I think, if I remember right. He said, The order of things has changed. The tomb devours death and not the dead. The house of death becomes a mansion of life. The tomb has become a womb. It's a place where hope is found despite the grief. It's a place where new life comes. The empty tomb tells us that there is no place where God's life-giving grace cannot work and where it will not go. The psalmists almost lament that there is no place that they can go to escape the God's presence. They can't even go to the to Sheol, the place of death itself. God 
is there? Where are the places that God wants to tell his resurrection story in your life? How can you show others where life has arisen out of death? The tomb was empty. The place of death has now become the place of life. God wants to do that in our lives as well. When we were in Mexico, I kept looking, we kept looking at different people and wondering what their stories were, whether they were, you know, the, the, the family that was uh, a couple um, spots over from us. Uh, they turned out to be from Aspen, a lot of people from Colorado there. Um, how did they find this place? We looked at the people who, um, uh, Ramon, who was our waiter who grew up in South Carolina but moved back to uh, Mexico when he had grown up um, and just, you know, flawless English and we were like that accent isn't like a learned English. That's a grown up with language. What's your story? And he told us some of it. We looked at other people, guys that maybe we would call beach bums, and we we're like, "What's your story? What are you wandering from? Where are you going in your life?" And I began to think that very easily could have been me. I very easily could have wandered in my life. When I when we moved from Oklahoma City area to Tulsa, it was like an upmooring, unmooring of my life, leaving the dock, not knowing what was next. But very quickly Christ came into my life and I found what was resurrection life and he became my anchor. He allowed me not to wander, but to have purpose and direction in my life. He gave me life. I think it's important for us to remember these things, to think on them and what God has done as well as what he is doing in your life so that we would be reminded of him because it's so easily, it's, we are so quickly to forget these things, but also so that we can share them, that we might see how the power of Jesus' resurrection in our own lives can have power in someone else's life as well. Maybe you don't believe that you can tell the resurrection story. Maybe you don't count yourself worthy. Maybe you still see yourself in process. You still struggle with sins that have been there since your youth. And that is quite true. <laughs> You're not worthy. You still struggle with sin. You're still in process. But the women being the first witnesses of the resurrection tells us that's okay. God doesn't count our witness based on anything other than that he is at work, that he has transformed us into witnesses. The first women, the first witnesses to the resurrection were women, and in the first century, that would have been a huge deal. They would not have been able to uh, uh, testify in court uh, for the, on their own sake, let alone someone else's. Their testimony, uh, but the angel commissioned them. It was not their worthiness that made them witnesses. It was their witness that made, their that made them witnesses. It is God's work in you that gives you witness to the resurrection life that he has invited you into. And the amazing thing is Jesus shows up. Jesus is risen. He 
greets the women as they run off to go tell the disciples with great fear and great joy. And he shows up and he goes, what's up? Hi is how Eugene Peterson translates it in the message. Uh, most translators say this is a pretty typical uh, benign hello uh, in Greek. Um, this was a kind of an expected greeting, a typical greeting, but these were not typical circumstances. The Greek is the word kairite. Uh, it's an imperative. It's a command, and it means rejoice. Rejoice. Take joy. That same command that was given to the shepherds at Jesus' birth is given by Jesus at his resurrection. Joy is given and experienced. At once the women run to him. They bow down. They take hold of Jesus' feet. And the text says they worshiped him. No self-respecting first century Jewish person would ever have worshiped anything or anyone else other than the Yahweh God. This is no small act of worship, and yet this is the right response. Proskuneo is the word worshiped. It literally means to bow down, to prostrate themselves, to lay themselves at his feet. And in doing so, they are giving their lives to him and receiving his resurrection life. He instructs them, be the first witnesses. Go tell not my disciples, but go tell my brothers. In receiving his life, he invites them to participate in his resurrection life and in his family. They're no longer disciples. They're brothers. We talk a lot about hospitality here. It's the love that God has towards us that we are strangers and enemies of him, but it transforms us into his family. It is a place at his table. That is what we are doing by participating in his life. We are bearing witness to his life in ours. We worship a lot of things in our lives. We lay our lives at their feet on a regular basis, hoping to receive life from them. These things that aren't God, Scripture calls idols. We don't usually use the word idols much anymore. We think of them as little statues or maybe Buddhas that we see when we go into a Chinese restaurant and we go, oh, that's neat. Maybe I'll get one for my house as well. But in reality, they're not just these little statues. Anything can be an idol. Even good things can be an idol. An idol is anything that we've made into an ultimate thing, something that we believe that we can't live without. How do you determine your idols? Where do you put your ultimate significance? What's something that if you lost, you would feel as if you would die as well? Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your possessions, your kids. Maybe it's your spouse. real question is, what enrages you? If I criticized something, what would just make you, send you over the top? For me, it's parenting. <laughs> um, someone who will remain nameless because my mom, I mean, uh, they might listen to this later, criticized my parenting recently, and uh, I felt rage throughout my entire, I shook, I shook quite literally with rage at their criticism that's an idol. 
um, people that step in and tell me what to do or how I should be doing my job uh, enrages me. Not quite the same way. That's an idol. In that moment, I become blind with rage. I criticize them. Oh, they haven't done this. Oh, you weren't the perfect parent either. Oh, you know everything. Well, maybe maybe I could learn something. Maybe I could just not base my identity and purpose in life on my parenting skills. Eventually, the problem with idols is that um, they, they work at first. You give a p- little bit of your life to them. And they say, we'll give a little bit to you. And then they say, well, uh, why don't you give me a little bit more? And they say, and you say, okay. And then they, they give you a little less. And eventually, they're only taking from you and you're never receiving. You're never receiving from them, never giving back. When we worship Jesus, though, he desires to give all of his life to us and he knows that it's going to take time he knows that you're not going to give all of yourself to him at one moment that it's going to be a lifetime of learning his way of life of entering into his resurrection of participating with the life-giving power that he desires to work in you and he says that's okay i love you i want you to be in my life i want you to participate with what you uh, with what I am doing because Jesus is the one where you can come and you can lay down your sin you can give over your brokenness your shame that you carry your guilt and you can receive his life his resurrection life the end is the beginning Jesus tells the women as the angel did to go and tell the brothers to meet him in Galilee this is where Jesus began his ministry. But this time it's a new beginning. It's a new life. No more is it just this one-dimensional life of, of, of giving pat answers and, and having things mass-marketed to you. No, it's resurrection life. It's life that digs deep down into the soil of your lives so that new life can be planted and begin to grow. Over the next several weeks, we will begin to look more at what this life looks like as Jesus encounters. And then at the end, we will come back to Galilee to hear what Jesus says to his disciples. It's more showing and telling. It's more look at what I am doing and go and tell others about it as well. Heed the invitation that Jesus has for you this morning. Enter into his resurrection life. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful that you sent your son so that we can know the depths of your grace and mercy and love, that you do not treat us just as one-dimensional beings, but you know the various uh, ways in which Uh, We have been made to reflect your glory, your power, your image, your mercy, your love. Lord, give us eyes so that we can see it. Give us ears so that we can hear it. Give us mouths so that we can share the goodness that you are working in our lives with those you have placed around us. Use your spirit, that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, to raise our lives 
to new life as well. Resurrection life in you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.